Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I like to announce that we're putting tariffs on our podcast. <laughs> we're going to start, start charging and be exported to a, all of your device. He'll bring some <laughs> revenue into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we spent all of our initial cash on beer and new equipment. <laughs> now we just need more beer. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. <laughs> Who's that? I don't know who that is. I'm back, baby! <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm your host, Nick McGuire, uh, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College. And uh, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, who is back. Yay. Woo. Woo. Welcome, Phil. Woo, indeed. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. It feels, it was painful being gone that long. You were gone for a really long time. It was very sad. Yeah. Pod- podcasting <laughs> is life. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, you came back for a good week. I'll tell you that. It's lots of um, tariffs and people quitting and... Nuclear weapons and uh, porn stars suing, porn yeah. stars and fascists. <laughs> so it's many things. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So good. Um, yeah. Uh, I might as well talk about the tariffs. That's. Uh, it seems to be. Uh, again, one of my favorite terms: rankling everyone's ass. Oh so. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So to remind the listeners, last Thursday the president surprised just about everybody by announcing he would impose stiff tariffs on imports of steel and aluminum. Trump's plan would impose a 25% uh, tariff on steel, 10% on aluminum. He's received opposition from just about every corner of the political world. His closest economic and national security advisors have argued against the tariffs, as well as congressional Republicans, including Paul Ryan, who usually rolls over for everything. Um, uh, Gary Cohen, Trump's top economic advisor, announced that he would be resigning on Tuesday. This has not dissuaded Trump, responding that, quote, in a tweet, trade wars are good and easy to win. Um, so, I that we could spend our whole time talking about that tweet. This yeah. idea, you know, this uh, trade wars are good and easy to win. No, no, they are. They're not good. No, nobody ever and nobody wins. wins. Yes. <laughs> and there's very few things that everyone across the political spectrum generally agrees with. But this is one that tariffs in this day and age are not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he's really he's excited about them though. <laughs> He's He's very excited about (laughs) it's exciting to do things that you've never done and know nothing about. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Phil, what are you you thinking about some good like tariffs? No, no. (laughs) I I mean, so this is, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting topic to talk about because this, this became a big part of the election, right? So this, the idea that, that what we needed was more protectionism was a big part of Trump's campaign, but it was a part of, Bernie Sanders campaign, Hillary Clinton picked up the idea, right, this shift away from free trade or from trade in general. Um, And there are 
there are logical roots to that um, having to do with, uh, you know, losing jobs overseas, manufacturing jobs and, and whatnot. But from a broader sort of macro perspective, you're, you're right. Like what you're saying is that it is pretty well universally agreed that that trade is good <laughs> and that these sorts of uh, policies um, are uh short-sighted that if they are if they are if they do serve their purpose in the short term they're far costlier in the long term i, I was in houston um, visiting family this last week in houston which is a you know a very conservative town um an oil city the front page of the houston chronicle talk was talking about how with these tariffs it's going to kill the oil industry because all of the imported uh you know all of the the um the drilling requires steel and aluminum. And so all the costs are going to go up. There's going to be jobs lost. And I mean, it, it seems it, it is really remarkable to see uh, a policy that seemed fairly popular in the election when it gets actually thrown out to have everyone sort of take this. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we didn't mean that reaction. Right. Well, the global economy is so complicated right now. You know, whatever it is that you're producing, it's it's crossing borders multiple times, uh, you know, even in the, the idea that, uh, you know, we're going to attack Canada, who is, I think, our number one, we get most of our steel from Canada. The idea was initially this is going to be targeting China, but they're not even the top 10 in terms of imports of steel to the United States. You're talking about hitting some European allies, Brazil, Canada. Uh, these are, you know, our longstanding allies that we're now potentially going to stick a tariff on. Uh, it, it seems like a just... A terrible idea. Mm -hmm. oh. I mean, it's very nationalistic, right? Yes. I mean, this is where it comes from, and this makes sense from Trump's rhetoric and from his base. But I, I, the idea of trade, I, I mean, the, the thing when I talk about this with students, it, the idea of trade at its core, everyone can agree is good, right? No one thinks I should do everything myself, right? It makes more sense if I do one thing and you do something else and we, we you know, we exchange goods, right? On a larger scale, the idea of putting tariffs and, and limits and, and um, you know, taxes in place between states, you know, if you had to buy something from Vermont, if you had to pay a tax to bring it back into New Hampshire, that would, that would be awful for the economy. But because we're talking about the United States versus Canada or versus China or whatever it brings in this nationalism to it um, which you know you know mucks up all the gears yeah yeah I disagree I yeah. think we should all we should be able to do everything you should go <laughs> you should go to the loom in the morning and then go to the smelter at night and it'll <laughs> it'll right. it'll be fine and that takes care of all of our problems that's, pull yourself up by you your do. bootstraps that that's you made you yourself do, right? yeah of course <laughs> yeah well the, the idea one of his tweets were if your country doesn't have steel you're not a country or something to that effect I mean, the reality is that, you know, our steel industry, our aluminum industry in the United States is is so tiny compared to all the other business elements that are reliant on steel. So, I mean, George W. Bush, during his administration, they, they you know, tried some uh, tariffs. On, I think it was a couple hundred thousand jobs were lost immediately, and they quickly decided this is a bad idea. Uh, same numbers for this. They're saying that if he goes ahead with this, pretty quickly there's going to be 150,000 jobs that will be lost because, I mean, th these are very simple, tangible ways to measure bad economic policy. But I don't know if that matters to Trump. Well, yeah, I think that's the issue is that I, I think at the core, what he was trying to do was create some sort of barrier between us and China, which is not necessarily a, a horrible idea given their global economic standards and them not playing by the rules that are put in place. There's no nuance to it, though. You just say you're going to slap a, 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 
a um, all-encompassing tariff on a, a particular resource, that that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. Had he targeted it at a specific nation or even specific enterprises within China or other countries that are flouting the international standards of, of free trade, then yeah, that would make a lot more sense. And I think you'd have a lot more people agreeing with it. It doesn't, it's, it's just, it's so basic in general. Yeah. It, there's no reason to do it whatsoever. Well, and the other thing is there's, a, there's some hypocrisy to all of this where yes, China dumps steel. There's no doubt about that, but the United States is not a fair trader by any sense of the mean. We t- means we talk about being a free market economy, but we undermine those rules all of the time. Mm countries around the world try to bring us to the WTO to say you're engaging in unfree, you know, unfair trading practices and we're just big enough where we say no, we're not going to change. So all big powerful states undermine free trade rules and But we're us. <laughs> right. And they're them. That's right. And- and, and that's where the short-sightedness of this yeah. enters in, because, the, again, in the immediate impact, it, it's easy to sell this with the sense of we're, you know, all, especially, you know, you think about the Rust Belt and all of, you know, the steel industry that has, you know, is basically gone in the United States. The idea of protecting jobs against kind of unfair trade practices is really appealing. But the, it's the sort of second and third steps behind that that we don't that the the jobs that are lost because we're paying more for steel. Um, the other part is that there there are always uh, um, responses, right? No, it's not that the rest of the world is going to go, oh well, crap. I guess we can't sell our stuff to America. They're going to impose, <laughs> right. you know, tariffs and limitations on us, which is going to hurt our exports and our you know the, the our economy so there's the the sort of primary in that these these essential things steel and aluminum are going to cost more there's the secondary impact which is that people are going to impose tariffs and quotas and things on american goods which is going to hurt as well um, i mean it's just it, it's not it's not thought through right it, it it feels good in the moment but in the long term it, it's it's just not the world we live in well phil Trump had a tweet to answer all of that. Okay, good. Um, good. It's about the EU. So he said, if the EU wants to further increase their already massive tariffs and barriers on U.S. companies doing business there, we will simply apply a tax on their cars, which freely pour into the U.S. They make it impossible for our cars and more to sell there. Big trade imbalance. So, so we'll just we'll just ratchet it up. So if, if the EU responds, we'll respond in kind and we'll get a real trade war. <laughs> so goddamn simple. Simplistic to think that way. So I, I, you know, this is the other thing I talk about with my class. I'm, I'm, I'm shopping for cars right now, and uh, today I was looking at, uh, it was like a Honda, a Hyundai, a Toyota, and a Chevy, and of those four, three of them are assembled in the United States, and it's the <laughs> yes. Honda, the Hyundai, and the Toyota. The Chevy is assembled somewhere else. So this idea that like an American car is like American jobs, which, which made sense 50 years ago. It doesn't it's just not the way it works. Right. And this I, this argument that he's making about protecting you know, about how steel, if you don't make steel, you're not. It's it's a, it's a 19th century understanding of right. economics. It's this this kind of mercantilist. Like if we're going to be strong and powerful, we have to be self-sufficient. And it, it's it it is it is the policy of a man who does. I mean, I guess he went to. Where did he? He went to Wharton. Penn, right? <laughs> yes. So he's an educated man. No, no, Phil, <laughs> Phil, come on, come on. Be nice. Yes. 
Now, you know, given that there's a lower tariff on aluminum, Phil, you should really be in the market for an aluminum car, not a steel car. So, <laughs> Do they even make steel cars anymore? I don't know. No, I think they're all made out of aluminum. <laughs> Plastic and fiber. Plastic, yeah. right. They're held together by glue. So Dan Dresner, who's a political scientist from Tufts, he was on, uh, I think it was Morning Joe this morning, and they were asking him about the implications of this. He studies political economy, and he described this as, or Trump's policy as, dumbass economics, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he is a smart guy. And he's, his basic point was this is so far removed from any educated conversation about how you respond to China's behavior. I mean, to Nick's point, there are ways to respond to China's dumping practices. But a, a universal uh, tariff on all steel and aluminum is not the way to do that. Uh, and, and so now th- this afternoon they were suggesting, well, maybe we'll allow some exemptions. Well, that you know, that uh, that's silly as well. Right. Um, I, what, what is the, is there? What's the approval process of of this? Do, I should know this, but I, I I don't. I mean, foreign policy. The president has a tremendous amount of leeway. Does he have to get any sort of congressional approval? I think he says it. I think there's a gavel that goes down at some point. <laughs> I think he just bangs a gavel in his office by so, himself. Well, this is what, what's most frustrating for me about all of this is he's doing this under a national security argument. So the president has powers when he feels national security is threatened to impose these tariffs. Now, uh, the defense secretary Mattis came to him and said, no, 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 no. We don't want this. So if there's anybody who would understand the threat to national security, you would think it's your secretary of defense. But he is making the argument this is a bad idea for our allies. So mm-hmm. so he's even misusing that that dynamic. It's just when your military bad. advisors, your economic advisors, yes. everyone says uh, your congressional leaders all, all say this is a bad idea. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we're dancing around it. What's the likelihood that this actually happens? 100%. It, you really think so? A hundred percent. What's the likelihood it sticks? That's true. For how long? That's a, that's a good question. I think he... There are a lot of things that Trump will flip-flop on, and he'll find out an excuse out. Well, we tried this. Now this is a better option. I really think this is something that gets to his core. I don't think he has a philosophy or an ideology, but I think he does... This economic nationalism is is part of who he is. It goes back to the 80s in Japan and all of that. So I think something happens. And maybe they water it down with enough exemptions for China, uh, not China, for Canada and other countries. But I think it happens and it sticks at least for a while. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Phil? Uh, I don't. I've I've sort of given up on predicting these things um, because he does. He caves on so many things, other things he sticks to. I I would think that, you know, when jobs start going away, there's going to be a public backlash. But I don't have faith in in like the American electorate to uh, we've talked about that. Partisanship drives everything. And so I I don't. And and economics are complicated. So uh, to to sort of connect the dots that the tariff is what caused my job and some other sort of unrelated field to be impacted. Um, it's, it's not an easy connection to, to make necessarily. You know, I remember during the election or shortly thereafter, I, I read somebody who was talking about Trump's kind of personality and worldview as being shaped by the fact that he is a businessman, but he's, he, de- he has never made anything in his life, right? He, he's, he's in real estate, essentially. So, I mean, he I guess he made buildings or whatever. But, um, you know, real estate is a very different type of commodity than uh you know, a, a product that you make and sell. Yeah. And, and I, I kind of see that playing out here in, in a way that, that, you know, even though he has been a successful 
I, I mean, we could have that debate. Some people, I'm sure, are yelling he's not yes. successful. He hasn't yes. been a successful businessman. But you know, even if you take the, the idea that he's been a successful businessman, he hasn't been. You know, it, it's not in this sort of business, yeah. right? In trade, um, and so I, you know, I can see this sort of simplistic approach of if somebody pisses you off, you cut them out, yeah. right? Well, and the fact that Gary Cohen is resigning because this is a big, big That's deal. Huge. I mean, he yeah. is. He is one of the adults in the room. He is a free trader. He is, uh, I mean, the, the, the stock market feels good when Gary Cohen is managing the economic situation and we're shifting away from that. Uh, this is another way in which the Republican Party is is morphing in kind of strange ways, right? Because the Republican Party has been the party of free trade, yes. low tariffs, free market. Like, you let economic forces determine these things. The government doesn't get involved. Um, and it's weird to see the, I mean, I, a lot of the the kind of, I, I don't know, a lot of the other Republican elites obviously have come out against it. But to even see a Republican president with a, a fair amount of Republican support do this. I mean, this makes far more sense for a far leftist, for someone like Bernie Sanders, yes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's weird to see this come out of a Republican president. Well, should we transition to chaos in the White House? It kind of <clears throat> There is none. There, There's right. none. So, Fake news. I mean, Gary Cohen leaving is a big indicator of what's going on. But So on Tuesday, Trump tweeted, quote, there is no chaos in the White House. <laughs> all o- is well. All, only great energy. Uh, all right. The day that he tweeted that, uh, which was Tuesday, Kellyanne Conway was found to be in violation of a major ethics law. His economic advisor, Cohen, quits, and it was sued, and he was also sued by a porn star. Uh, in addition, last week, Hope Hicks left, uh, and it appears everyone else other than Stephen Miller is eyeing their own exit. Uh, Trump was said to be especially unhinged this weekend when announcing his new tariff policy. An article in the Washington Post this weekend quoted a White, White House aides as saying, quote, these are the darkest days in the last half year, and they worry just how far much how much further President Trump and his administration may plunge into unrest and malaise before they start to recover. As one official put it, we haven't bottomed out. Um, now, <laughs> yes, that should terrify us. <laughs> I think one potential explanation is Trump has a new diet. Uh, it includes lots of salads and soups. But no fast food. Oh, yeah. How's he gonna get his energy levels up? <laughs> right. so I, I know that this, that's not the point of this topic, but I'm gonna call fake news on that. <laughs> he might have a new diet that has been prescribed for him, but there is no way that he's just eating salads. No, no way. He, well, they're coming. They're still coming from McDonald's. <laughs> it's <laughs> the lettuce on his burger. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh. yeah. So with Gary Cohen leaving, uh, Rob Porter, what it was a couple weeks ago, is now out. Uh, Hope Hicks. These are all individuals that were close to Trump and were competent in their jobs. Now, Rob Porter was a wife beater and a terrible person, but he was competent. They said there was no way the rollout of the tariff policy would have happened had he been in power, had he been there. So um, it just feels like there's a shift and it's not going to get better. Like this reminds me of those early days when Bannon was calling the shots and it was a you know the wild west in the white house i mean who's left besides miller at this point it's him and it's him and trump right and mattis and like mattis. keeping yeah. mcmaster will soon be gone it's crazy i mean we've talked about this in previous weeks that any other presidential administration that had this much turnover that would be a, a massive scandal right and, and obama had some turnover to the extent that it was a scandal on the right and it was nothing like yes. this it, mm. it is it is um remarkable the hope hicks thing she's 
29. Yep. Is that right? Mm-hmm. She's 29. And in her like statement about leaving, she said she's leaving for other opera for better or other opportunity, better opportunities for other opportunities. She's 29 and works for the president of the United States and <laughs> thinks there are better opportunities. That tells you something about the state of the White House and how she views it. That's that's remarkable. I heard she took a job on a cruise ship. I mean, this is you know, what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> No, absolutely. The fact that this quickly, you're right, Phil, there's a lot of turnover in the White House, but usually you make it at least a year. Uh, and, and now these individuals are strategically trying to see how quickly I can get out the door. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was an article in Political that I read today where they were interviewing White House aides, again, anonymously, anonymously. But one said, quote, the number of bad ideas that have come through this White House that were thankfully killed dead. There are too many to count. From a policy perspective, it's going to be disaster, right? I mean, so they're saying with with all of these individuals, especially Gary Cohen, who was a moderating voice, he was a free trader. He, you know, this is it's it's going to get really, really bad. The idea that a free trader is a moderating voice in the White House tells you something about the state of this White House, yes. right? I mean, yes. free trade is like the American way, right? This is the, even if we don't always act that way, it's the sort of thing that we, yeah. you know, it, it's like apple pie and free trade, right? They yeah. go together. Um, that that is like that that he this one person who happens to be a free trader is the yeah it's it's a little disturbing. So so in two ways, I think this the, the people departing are is problematic. One. All the people around him that kind of kept Trump calm, Hope Hicks and Gary Cohen, like just from a uh, and if we say like, a, you know, the Kushner, Javanka, like they're being isolated. So all that, that kind of nepotism that made him feel good, that's starting to go away. And a policy perspective, all of the adults are gone. So we're going to see economic nationalism. We're going to see the protectionist. Stephen Miller is going to be writing a lot of stuff. It's going to get wild, Nick. Well, nobody's being replaced either, as far as I can tell. Like, not even the inkling that there is a potential candidate for any of these positions. We're shrinking government. Well, I... I, Okay, I'm... I'm, (laughs) Don't don't confuse those two <laughs> arguments, damn it. <laughs> and on top of that, you have the fact that at the beginning, a huge number of positions just weren't filled to begin right. with. So there's a small portion that were ever filled, and they are being turned over yeah. dramatically. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, there probably were a tremendous amount of bad ideas. I think there's probably a tremendous amount of bad ideas in any administration that get killed before we hear anything. But now he's alone. <laughs> he's alone in the room. Yes. In his he's, bathroom, he's, yeah, and he's he's backed into a corner. And I, I, you're right; he doesn't have those moderating voices. I, and mo- he's and he's hungry, Nick. <laughs> he's hungry. <laughs> and if I, I mean, if the the only voices that we're seeing are potentially Kelly and McMaster, and then you have Miller, who I would guess knows how to goad him in the right directions, that's really really scary. Yeah. So one of the rumors is that McMaster will be gone soon, and one of his potential replacements is John Bolton. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. Oh, man. So, John Bolton. The walrus? Yes. Wonderful mustache. Uh, he was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, during the George W. Bush administration. He is, I don't know, Phil. I mean, he is... Famous for thinking that the U.S. I mean, this is, again, where, like, 
this is where so much has changed. In the Bush administration, it was outrageous that he was the UN ambassador because one of the things that he's most well known for is the fact that he thinks the UN shouldn't exist. Yes. So they've, nice. and that was like insane at that moment. And now that seems pretty damn sane. That yeah. seems like a good, a good but, plan. Huh? No, he would be a terrible choice, though. I mean, he's he's off. more chaos. He's more extremism. Uh, he's just uh, he's, but he's a personality. He absolutely fits with mm. the Trump administration. All of this, um, I don't. Yes, uh, chaos is coming. Phil, you wanted to talk a bit about uh, the Stormy Daniels lawsuit as something that's part of this chaos. Yeah, I mean, I guess, so we we debated whether how much time we were going to dedicate to the the Stormy Daniels story that came out today. So you know, Stormy Daniels is this porn star that Trump. Uh, I don't even know that you can say allegedly it's that he had an affair yeah, with, right? right? His lawyer has come out and acknowledged that this, and she was paid how much? $130,000. $130,000. From as Trump's basic, lawyer. Right, right. <laughs> Just out of the goodness of his heart. In a, in a non-disclosure, for a non-disclosure agreement that apparently Donald Trump didn't sign. And so now Stormy <laughs> Daniels is saying she's not bound by that and she's suing the president for some... The president had an affair with a porn star, signed a non-disclosure agreement, paid no, her off. No, didn't, She's now didn't suing sign, him. Sign. She's suing him. And like this is like nothing. Like, yes. It is insane that this is that this has become the state of American politics. That, that That's like that should be the political story of the century. And it's not even like it didn't even make our top six for this week. No, right. it should have been swept under the rug like every other administration. <laughs> That's the proper way to deal with politics. That's the problem. They put it in writing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You don't have, you don't have a paper trail. You never have a paper trail. Trump just make it disappear. <laughs> Trump can't even do a non-disclosure agreement, right? He can't even sign the document that's going to save him. Right. It's just, it's, bonkers that this is all playing out uh, but it's not chaotic no no there's no chaos no. um in Just... that tweet where he said there was no chaos he also said i still have some people that i want to change always seeking perfection there is no chaos only great energy right so he still wants to make changes uh he's he's looking for perfection phil right it's that he wants to find that right balance so, which of course makes jeff sessions a little worried every time he talks about making a change it's always Poor Jeff Sessions. <laughs> I mean, I where, where, where the fuck do we go from here? Yeah, where do we go? We're not even talking about policy me, anymore, right? It's it's there's no discussion of policy. There's no discussion of any kind of doctrine, domestic or foreign. It is just reality television. I think mm -hmm. that's what I've I've come to believe this week. All he wants to do is have an entertaining presidency where he can have some villains that he can vent against. There's no desire to really make America great again. That's a, that's a joke, right? It's there's nothing. Do, do you think that there's no that he doesn't really care about that or do you think that in his reality television view of things, he doesn't realize the implications. So th there's a difference between like, I know the policy I do has, you know, I'm not concerned about policy. I just want to be on center stage. Mm -hmm. There's another that he he's he He's playing that role and just has no clue of, like, the impact that that is having. I agree more with that. Has yeah. Hashtag two things can be true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I legitimately think he has some concept of wanting to make the country better. And he just is he he's just not qualified to do it. Yes. He, I, I honestly think, especially with this, the, the tariff thing, he thinks 
that is going to be beneficial to the country because China's being a dick about importing steel. So we're going to be dicks back and, you know, it'll work itself out that way and we're going to win. And it's it's that simple. And in some situations, that's probably correct. This current situation, a lot of the other situations that we've discussed, probably not so much. There's again, there's no nuance to anything that's done. It's just hammer, hammer, hammer the entire time. But you think it's heartfelt. You don't think that he's just doing it because he thinks it's the popular or that it will get him attention or people will like him for doing it. Like you think he's doing it because he thinks it's the right thing to do. I, I personally think it's more that he thinks it's the right thing to do as opposed to, yeah, that that this is some elaborate, you know, look over here. Yeah. Kind of um, misinformation and, and obfuscation thing. I agree with I that. He's not Nixonian that way. Like, Nixon would do what was strategically beneficial to him. Trump, I, at least on trade, I think this is authentic to who he is. Yeah. I see. I I think it's pathological. I think he's. <laughs> I think he's a he's a narcissist at heart, right? Like I think that I don't think he cares that much. I think he's doing the thing that he thinks will be a good story or that people want, and he thinks this will be popular and people will appreciate that he's fighting for them. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I th- I think you, you. I don't. You you I, give him yeah. some sort of strategic. Like I don't. I don't know that he's necessarily being all that strategic, or that he spends that much time thinking about whether or not steel tariffs are good or not. I think he's like, he wants attention, and announcing steel tariffs is one way to get it. I don't. I don't know. Oh yeah. Like I. I. I mean, I don't. Again, I don't think it's there's any strategic thinking behind it. I think it's very one dimensional. But I. I again don't think that. I. I <laughs> two things can be true. Again, I. I think that he thinks that it's the right thing to do. And on top of that, a bonus, it's going to fire up his base and he's going to get attention from it and it's going to draw attention away from something else. I, like, I, I think that's been a running theme with the administration for the entirety of its existence. Yeah. Phil, I think you've forgotten how much he hates foreigners as well, right? I mean, that's, that's an important factor. So, so a couple things are coming together. Oh, he really likes the Norwegians. Don't, <laughs> yes. don't, They're lovely don't people. Cut, but they don't make steel. And the Saudis. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Oh, should we talk beer, Nick? Yeah, please. All right. (laughs) Phil, why don't you start us off? What are you drinking? Uh, My first beer was a Long Trail Brewing Company Trail Vision Pale Ale. So Long Trail is out of Vermont, and and I've had several of their beers that I really like. I've never tried this Trail Vision Pale Ale, and I I liked it. It um, it It wasn't a real strong pale ale. It wasn't super hoppy. It was more kind of malty and citrusy. It was kind of light, and I um. I enjoyed it as we sort of get more spring-like. I, that I'd probably come back to that. I, I'm, I just opened a Aren't founder's you a snowstorm today. <laughs> yeah, only only like 18 inches tonight. Wow. So, um, I am currently on a campus that is. Oh, I no, I'm not. I'm not on campus drinking. I'm currently near a campus <laughs> that is uh, um, that is closed because of the, the snow. But anyway, uh, the other my second beer that I just opened is a Founders. Mm. Um, I don't know where Founders Brewing is. Michigan. Mm-hmm. Do you know Founders? Yeah, they're very good. Yeah. They have an all-day IPA. Have you had that one before? Probably. Yes, yes, that is a good beer. I just, I just opened it. Hold on. <laughs> oh, much hoppier than the first one. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty good. 
Nick, nice. do you want to describe the beer we we first enjoyed? Yeah, so we had a um, it's a Trader Joe's Audacity Blonde Ale, but I believe it's made by Unibrow, which is yeah Unibrow, which is out of uh, Canada. Um, so I'm assuming we're gonna have some sort of tariff on that. Um, <laughs> Unibrow is re- it, it tastes a lot like their other beers. I don't know if you've had their other no, beers. It's no. kind of um, it's very carbonated, um, a light sweetness to it, kind of a Saison-esque, yes. I guess. You love the Saison. I do. It's yeah. delicious. Because I used to hate these when I was younger. I thought they tasted like crayons. Um, <laughs> I don't really know why I never ate crayons. Um, regardless, I, I yeah, I, I like it. I'm a little confused why it's branded Trader Joe's. But, um, yeah, kind of an average Saison thing. Like I said, a little, little sweet, very carbonated. Um, I enjoyed it. Yeah. As I was drinking, I thought, Nick is going to like this beer. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So I thought it was fine. Uh, It was a little too carbonated for me, but still a a solid beer. I will say that when I finished that, I poured my Three Floyds Alpha King, and I've had two sips, and the two sips after that first beer were just delightful. (laughs) Sometimes beer is about contrast, like what you have after something. And Mm -hmm. I've had Alpha King before, and I thought it was a solid pale ale, but after that beer, this is just... It's, it's it wasn't bad. No, 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 but this is better. Okay, fine. Yeah. yeah. Fine. That's just different. <laughs> so, all right, speed round. Yep. So, all right. So, we're going to start in North Korea today. Uh, and unlike most weeks, it's a dramatic easing of tension. So North Korea said it's willing to discuss relinquishing its nuclear weapons and will freeze its nuclear missile program uh, if it begins direct talks with the United States. The North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, is also willing to meet with the South, his South Korean uh, counterpart, President Moon. Uh, they're going to meet in late April for the first summit of its kind in more than a decade. Now, I think the only reaction to this is that Donald Trump was right, and his tough talk was just what North Korea needed. Yeah. Gentlemen. America. Yeah. Done. Yeah, no need to discuss. Okay, we, we can move on. It. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, guys. Yes. Now, I guess I guess the only question is, is there any chance North Korea could be lying? Uh, would they? Would they would I'm they... assuming they're doing this so they can get in the same room as the South Korean president and assassinate him. That's my, that's my thought. It's going to be like a movie. Which I think, didn't the United States put additional sanctions on North Korea for assassinating Kim Jong-un's brother-in-law Brother. today or something so. yeah yeah mm-hmm. so phil you're on board with all of this <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's not bad right it's not a bad development that that north korea is willing to talk i, I mean i so who who's the who won right so I, this is the way i i think it's kind of a silly way to talk about it but it's the way the media is going to talk about it um you you sort of joked about donald trump's tough talk do you do you think that is the case did donald trump win did did north korea win i i tend to think that north korea has won right this is um north korea has gotten everything not everything they've wanted but they're a nuclear power and they've reached out to their neighboring countries and this is their ability now now that they've achieved their nuclear weapons they can say hey we're what they've always wanted is to be considered a, a you know a, a player in international politics and they can do that they have this bargaining chip and this is a great way of actually sort of you know punching america in the nuts in some way right it's like <laughs> we have we're willing to talk we're going to be the reasonable one we'll give up our nuclear weapons which they can do because they have the technology they can develop it whenever they want right this is they're in a perfect position they can now appear reasonable um, they can demand talks with the U.S. directly, which is in some some way, some level of uh, international recognition. It, it seems like this has been played beautifully by North Korea. 
I think everybody wins here. I think North Nick, Korea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> North Nick looks very skeptical yes. of what I just said. <laughs> I think North Korea wins because there's been a de-escalation. South Korea wins because the United States is now not going to start bombing North Korea. China may be the biggest winner because all of this is decreased tension. Uh, the United States gets a little win because North Korea is now going to have conversations. Uh, so there's winning all around. I think that's probably true. Yeah. North Korea is lying. Uh, this is this fits a similar pattern. They agreed in you know going back to 1994. <clears throat> they agreed. They made a similar pledge in 2012 or 2005. This is a, this is what North Korea does. They say, oh, we're willing to suspend testing, but th- there's no way North Korea is going to give up their nuclear weapons. Absolutely not. What about forgiveness, Bill? <laughs> Doesn't doesn't happen. <laughs> You're so pessimistic. Um, it's um, I, I mean, I, it's still extraordinarily early to be discussing this at all. But regardless of the way that they came to the table, they at least appear to be coming to the table, even if it was at the cost of some, you know, perceived American political ca- uh, capital in Asia. I, I don't really give a shit if it got them to the table. If that was even a factor in what if you know their their discussions, I'd still count that as a win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, the the more they're they're talking with the South Koreans, there's I, I mean there's no way that the South Koreans are going to give up a lot of um, strategic capital in regards to North Korea, where it could threaten their national security. So the more that the North Koreans are talking to the South Koreans, it's just a better alternative. I, I don't really see a downside to it. I, I tend to agree. I, I think it, this is good, right? I, I mean, it, it, when you consider the alternatives, um, you know, would you rather have North Korea be honest and, and say, we're not ever going to talk to anyone and we're, you know, screw you. I mean, it, it, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's good. I, maybe I should say it's not that they are the winner. It's that this seems to be a smart play by North Korea. It yep. seems to be a, you know, by doing this, by appearing to want to come to the table it puts the U.S. in a hard position because the U.S. has to either say, yes, we will talk to you or no, you little turds, we don't believe you. But then, you know, that the North Korea is the one who's attempting and the U.S. is the one who's being difficult. So yeah. it's it's a pretty it's a pretty brilliant uh, strategic or diplomatic move on their part, whether they mean it or not. Well, yeah, that'll be the thing. What our response is to this, yeah. if like you said, if we're back to calling him little kim was it little kim rocket man it's oh rocket little, man. Yeah, was it little yeah. kim little too kim, yes, yes hilarious um yeah if, if we don't respond in kind with this then yeah there's a serious problem and we're back to where we started or in a worse place than where we started do, and the north, do we buy a lot do we buy a lot of north korean steel are they going to be we're gonna right. <laughs> well the other thing is that the north koreans are trying to create space between south korea and the united states and this does some of that so there's that's the other big thing that we need to to, to think about but so. i mean again joking about pessimism nobody's that stupid we know they're most likely lying about this it's a political game the south koreans aren't going to give up much the north koreans certainly aren't going to give up much and we'll see how much political face and capital we're willing to give up in the whole thing. I would imagine not that much. But the reality is, aren't we just getting back to zero? I mean, the, 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 I would kill for zero. Right? Zero I mean, would be is, awesome. This is the, basically the end of the Obama administration, where we had all this crazy rhetoric by the Trump administration, and now we're getting back to the point where we were beforehand, which is still terrible, uh, but it's not you know on the verge of war. Right. I, we're not I, tweeting at each other yeah, about nuclear right. that's, war that's, on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. Well. I mean, Which at is the better. same time, 
the end of the Obama administration, relations were not great. No. I mean, the entire North Korean nuclear program was developed during that administration, pretty much. So getting back to zero may not be the best thing, but yeah, a little more stability in our rhetoric. Yeah. Trending the right way. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. All right, top, we're going to stay international for topic number two. Jeez. Yes, uh, term limits for Xi Jinping, gone. <laughs> All right, so the surprise disclosure on Sunday that the Communist Party was abolishing constitutional limits on presidential terms, effectively allowing President Xi Jinping to lead China indefinitely, was the latest and arguably most significant sign of the world's decisive tilt toward authoritarian governance. President Trump expressed support for the shift and told donors at a private meeting on Saturday that, I think it's great. Maybe we will want to give it a shot someday. So there's two things here. One is the fact that China is moving in that direction, (laughs) which I think is an important question to think about whether, is that the new model of global governance? To say that China, what China is doing as opposed to the American democracy. And the second is Trump's response to all of this. Which is stupid, but he may have been joking, Nick. I don't know. Well, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's from New York. It could be sarcasm. Right. We don't but really know. He does like the authoritarians. He does, yes. Mm. <laughs> it's just, it, I, I, mm. Can, I, you talk, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the idea that, that China is removing um, term, term limits, limits yeah. on its president is not all that shocking right it's not it, this is not a, a you know a, a bastion of democracy it's all bullshit. um <laughs> but i i think the the fascinating part or the the really interesting element of this is the that if they had done this 10 years ago there would have been widespread international condemnation and pressure but over the last few years, this has become, like you were saying, the trend, right? Whether it's in Turkey or in Poland or in the Philippines or like around the world, you have this shift towards more authoritarianism, right? That This kind of blanket pressure that existed, particularly in the 1990s and early 2000s about even if you're not democratic, you have to pretend to be democratic. That seems to be eroding, right? That this international, this sort of global belief that democracy isn't just good, but it is the it's the only option, right? Everyone has to be moving towards democracy. That seems to be weakening. Um, and that's concerning, right? I think that I think so. I think, in, you know, on a big scale, that's the big story here is that, you know, the, how this fits into this broader pattern in the way that this kind of happened in the international community didn't really there wasn't, you know, I mean, there was response, but not dramatic. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that their publics in those countries generally accept this to say well you know this isn't great but i don't want i don't want trump right i don't want that type of democracy it helps the authoritarians make that argument well, but I, I, go ahead sorry no go ahead talk no it's um i, I mean i think china is a, a very very special case when we're talking about this too um i i they've become so ascendant in global politics, it's hard to argue with the success that they had. And a lot of that has been due to Xi Jinping mm-hmm. uh, to to some extent. Um, I would bet there's a significant amount, uh, a significant portion of the Chinese population that agrees, at least the, you know, educated urban elite that has prospered tremendously from this. Having said that, it's still a, a, an extremely authoritarian regime who real, does not take 
human rights or, or civil rights in, into account into much of what they do. But because of that, they're able to accomplish a lot because yeah. they don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, it's scary. Maybe we've gotten to a point where we finally have benevolent dictators. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for that day. It's great. <laughs> it's great to finally be here, guys. <laughs> you know, tomorrow... I love how you, you talk about <laughs> China's human rights violations and then follow that up with a statement about benevolent dictatorships. <laughs> Yeah, Phil, you were talking about democracy's brand taking a hit, and I think that's the big story here. That mm-hmm. you know, for a long time, democracy was the only alternative. This was the free market and democracy. This was the end of history. This is what everybody is searching for. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Countries around the world, and it's not just you know, it's it's not just Russia and China and Egypt, but Hungary and Poland. We'll talk about Italy in a little bit. There are there are a wave of non-democratic and democratic countries moving towards more authoritarian systems and it's deeply troubling for liberal democracies so let's use that to transition to the other part of this because that's the other part of this that an american president's response to this was maybe we'll do this someday not yes that this is totally unacceptable and we stand for the you know freedom and democracy for the chinese people right and whether donald trump was joking or not um, to me is to some extent irrelevant here because it's again, it's another one of those that any it's it's hard to imagine any other American president ever saying that, um, you know, even even as a joke. Um, and, and so that that that's in some ways evidence of the way in which this kind of idea um, that, you know, strong government or a shift away from democracy has become even a tiny bit more accepted, even like in the U.S., you know. But beyond that, like using that to transition to the fact that an American president (laughs) said that maybe we'll have essentially presidents for life someday is... Mm. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) Actually, that's a... Barker, you always make me think, because that's a really important point. I, I had been focusing on whether he was joking or not. But you're right. That doesn't matter. The right response is to condemn what China is doing mm-hmm. like as as a leader of a democratic country is to push back and say the leader of the free world yes yes this is the system everybody wants not to say this guy's a great guy he's doing good work and hey maybe we should try this that's the that's the right response is to attack I I agree with that but at the same time nobody seems to care either like the, I was shocked at the limited amount of coverage that this got very 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 limited nobody is focusing on this whatsoever I like I haven't seen one story about it this week yet and this should be a giant story yeah yeah do you think that that, i mean i know we're we're out of time and we should move on to the next topic but we talk so much about you know living in prison and getting used to it Mm -hmm. um do you it feels uh, there are obvious shifts right that that we are treating the trump presidency differently right whether it's he had sex with a porn star while his wife was pregnant or he joked about being uh, elected for life or whatever you know these these things that were never acceptable it feels like we kind of have this like, you know, well, you know, oh, Trump, right? Like it's Trump. He's, you know, he's joking or he's, you can't take him seriously. Do you think that when he's gone, like the next president, will we go back to being outraged by these things? Or do you think we have forever changed the way we think about politics? That we forever changed. I don't think yeah. it's easy to go back. It depends on how big the dumpster fire gets, Phil. Nick, it is. <laughs> it is huge. <laughs> the dumpster's the gone. Country, the whole country is a dumpster fire. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it could get, it could get bigger. It could get worse. It yeah, that's bigger. right. Yeah, you got a little, got a little ways to go. Could be a nuclear dumpster fire. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> As you were talking, I was uh, what you were saying, Phil, made me think of the fact that if we're having an international conversation about authoritarianism, authoritarianism versus democracy, it's hard to make the case for democracy when you have Donald Trump as your president. It's hard to argue, no, you should try this. This is great uh, because it's so embarrassing when you have a president who does all of these things, right? It's hard to say. You know, Xi Jinping seems like a much more reasonable international leader than Donald Trump. And that's that's terrible to say that a leader of an authoritarian system seems more appealing than a democratic system. I mean, you can't even, I, I, as much as I, I agree with that statement, it's also the responsibility of the population of those democratic countries to show that it's yeah. not okay with them that this is going on. But it is. But what do you mean? The, with the, the, the people are like, this is good. Yeah, right. I mean that's what I'm saying. Like, what we're do- we're just fighting amongst ourselves at this point. Yeah, and agreed. like, if you're looking at that from the outside, and you know, the Russians did an awesome job at at at, uh, at pitting us against each other. Not that those issues weren't there uh, simmering to begin with, but if you're looking at this from, you know, some third world country in Southeast Asia or anywhere else where democracy is you know has a a a tenuous hold at best why it just it looks like why would i want that why can't i just have stability and you know i don't have to think about this shit and just yeah especially if you're an authoritarian leader why make that transition right i mean nobody's gonna be pushing that's a great point yeah yeah. stability and security and you don't have to think about this ever because we're going to take care of everything And, and yeah, I mean, all of this, it's easy. We've it's easy to point at Donald Trump and blame him right for all of this. But this was the appeal of Donald Trump, right? These things that are happening internationally are happening here. The the appeal was that he can cut through the bullshit and he doesn't care what people think. And like that, that's, you know, it's easy to look at another country and say, why don't they want democracy? Why do they want authoritarianism? But that's that's the sort of thing that people found appealing about Donald Trump, right? This Mm -hmm. bullshit democracy stuff, cut through it, do the right thing even if it's not popular and and you're effective yeah i mean it, it, yeah. we don't deserve democracy <laughs> i love democracy it's super so i'm looking at our outline and i now we have to jump to texas now but we should jump to italy but well, that's fine we can talk about Texas. you can move the outline around can we move know, my outline? Can do italy we first do that. can we let's do we, italy first do, yeah okay the, the outline doesn't say that nick <laughs> It's okay. Okay, all right. It's we'll okay, go to Bill. Italy. <laughs> so, are you flustered, Bill? I am a little, but I can still read. <laughs> all right. So, Italy. So, speaking of troubled democracies, Italy was plunged into political uncertainty Monday after parliamentary elections delivered victories for populist Eurosceptic parties, but left no clear path forward for a new government. With nearly all votes counted on Monday, fifty percent of votes showed support for populist or right-wing parties. Uh, the anti-establishment five-star movement became the largest single party in parliament with roughly 32% of the vote. Uh, it appears that despite the victories of Merkel and Macron in Germany and France, right-wing populism in Europe is not going away anytime soon. And there there certainly is a shift to the far right attacking, and, uh, attacking immigration, attacking the European Union. Again, this idea that democracy has been seized by forces pushing the government in an awkward direction. So, so Phil, you're our comparativist here. Uh, what was your take on the Italian elections? Um, I, I don't, I don't know that it was all that shocking um, with what some of the stuff that Italy has gone through in terms of Italy has, as opposed to Germany, which is kind of at the, you know, the, the leader of the EU and has benefited economically. Italy has, they're not Greece, but they've, you know, they've been subject to, um, 
uh, economic um, austerity measures, um, they are uh, they receive a lot of North African um, uh, refugees and they've had to bear the brunt of that. So uh, the, the, the fact that these things are big issues in Italian politics is not terribly surprising. Italy has had a long history of political corruption. And so the fact that so the the um, I mean, I, I think it's worth saying that these sort of conservative populist parties, they're not as sort of neo-Nazi as some of the European parties. So the five-star movement, what's his name, Beppe Grillo or whatever? Yes, mm. a um, comedian. Yeah, it's a fascinating move. It's bizarre because they, they are really a true populist movement in that they, they when they first came on the scene, they wouldn't run anyone who had ever held political <laughs> office before. Yes. They were all amateurs. Um, they want there. It was really a pushback against political corruption. They wanted regular people. They wanted to get power out of Rome and give it back to the people. But at the same time, it's weirdly progressive. Like they're very pro environmental and very pro like public transit and all these other things. So it's not like a far right wing party the way we would typically think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 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 northern La Lega, the the Northern League, the other party that's kind of far right wing um, is is really kind of a, they've always they've been sort of a secessionist party. They don't like big government a, at all. Um, it's significant that 60 percent of the Italian population, 66 percent voted for parties that wanted to leave the EU. So I I don't tend and, and some of them are pretty strongly anti-immigration. So I, it, I don't know w- whether it's the sort of nationalism that's at play, how much of it is sort of economics um, but if you're a fan of the EU, if you're Germany, it's got to make you real nervous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The term. So that some of the parties describe themselves as post-fascist. That was yeah. one of the things that really troubled me. That it was, you know, th- that they would be comfortable using that language. And some of the language used to describe anti-immigration policies felt like those are things that shouldn't be said publicly and, and in the past hadn't been said, pub- said publicly. So I think you're right that the immigration pressures are intense in Italy. Yeah. And so maybe that leads to some of that language. And and it's in a country that has a fascist past. So yes. there's something yeah. about like you see these sort of neo-Nazi movements in the U.S. And there's like a it's weird to say a romanticization of like Mm -hmm. the, you know, the Nazi or fascist movements. You have young people who never experienced that. It's a little, it's, it's even, it's more shocking to me that in a country that had a fascist past that did not go well to see the sort of revival of that, of that movement. I I mean, I, I, think this is it's obviously another referendum on the eu i mean italy has somewhere between a 10 and 12 percent unemployment rate i think yeah. too uh the largest debt in the eu outside of greece i believe yeah. uh and they have to deal with tens of thousands of migrants who they are not getting any uh or, or very little material support from the eu to deal with if you're an average italian citizen who's struggling to find a job and you're seeing huge amounts of immigrants come in who are being housed for free and given free meals or, or some sort of monetary compensation to help them. Why? Like I I would be really, really pissed about it, especially if you think that you don't have any um, ability to dictate your own national agenda or identity. And it's being completely dictated by mainly Germany and Merkel and Mm -hmm. other powers in the EU who you have no attachment to whatsoever. I, I, I this, it's, it's gonna get bad. It's gonna yeah. get really and, bad. 
And Italy's one of the founding members. I mean, there were six original members of the EU, right? And Italy was one of them. So the fact that Italy is is stepping away is particularly symbolic or or important. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's an important point. It suggests to me that the EU should be doing more to address some of the immigration problems at its core, whether we're talking about yeah. Syria or North Africa. Like, think about what is going wrong in those countries that's causing people to flee and see if we can't address some of those concerns so that those pressures don't reach Europe. Right. I mean, it's it's just, yeah. So I, I just, I know we're out of time, but I, as a as a comparativist who does Europe, I, I feel like I should throw in a disclaimer, which is that Italy changed their election system as well for this election. So, and, and Italy has had in the past 20 years, massive corruption scandals that have led to the collapse of major political parties. So um, these kind of right-wing parties emerging is significant, but it, it I don't want people to read too much into it, right? If, if a right-wing party had like overwhelming had won 67 percent of the vote in germany mm-hmm. it would be really remarkable and and it i'm not saying it's not remarkable it's still a big deal in italy but there are other factors that at play as well that might be contributing to the rise of of some of these um there were real north south divisions italy has long had these north south divisions the fact that one party won all of the north and won all the south um yeah i, I don't know i i it, it is significant it's something to watch but i i don't i i don't think you can't jump too far in the conclusions about what this means. Um, it, it certainly doesn't bode well for the EU. But the other thing I think about is that this election brought Berlusconi back. Now that Berlusconi can't be he can't be prime minister because of the multiple crimes. I I think he's banned for another year. Is that right? He, yeah. Yeah. He's the greatest. But it makes me think of Donald Trump. Berlusconi is the European Trump, right? And he's terrible. He's awful. He's corruption. It's it's scandal all the time. He has sex parties. <laughs> right, exactly. He is he he tans himself with some kind of skin toner. But he continues to come back. The Italians continue to go back and at some point they're like, Oh, Berlusconi's terrible. Eh, he's not so bad anymore. Mm-hmm. It makes me fear that populism and Trump like candidates might have a longer legacy in the United States than we think about. So the other part of this, and I'm rambling on because I like European politics, but um, the other part of this that is worth noting is that the two parts, so there's essentially a right-wing coalition that got 35% of the vote, and then this Pepe Grillo, this five-star movement, got about 32%. The logical thing, they're both EU, the logical thing would be for them to form a coalition and put together a government that goes against the EU. But you have to remember that one of them (laughs) features... Berlusconi, and the other features a guy who thinks that no one who's ever held poli- office should should be in part in, yeah. in in power. They're totally anti-corruption. So I, it, the idea that they would form a coalition seems sort of unimaginable. That yeah. that the five star movement, who's totally anti-corruption, would somehow form a coalition with Berlusconi, <laughs> who is the personification of corruption. And so um, it doesn't necessarily mean that even though 60 some odd percent voted for kind of anti-EU parties, it doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to be the look of the Italian government moving forward. Wasn't it a five star candidate who ended up becoming mayor of Rome not that long ago? Or was that a different party? I don't know. I think that's that's somebody different. OK, I like that guy. Yeah. No, it's. I thought it was a woman. Oh, it not? then we're thinking of somebody else. Okay. Yeah. Then Bill doesn't like him anymore. <laughs> That's right. Well, there was no, no, no. I'm thinking of the mayor of Florence. The mayor of Florence. What's his name? That that ultimately. Oh, too many. Regardless, yeah. one of these, one of those parties. I, I'm almost positive it was from the the five star movement. Um, was completely anti corruption. Got rid of all of the mob related contracts that were 
inherent in in Roman politics. And now there's garbage in the street. Everything is too expensive to do. There's strikes every other day. And it's a giant fucking mess. Like, I don't think any of these parties is capable of actually governing effectively. The (laughs) mob political system is The mob mob gets shit done. Shit done. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's jump from Italy to Texas. Now we'll go to Texas. All right, so... Still on foreign policy. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right, so big number, big Democratic show up in the Texas primary yesterday. Uh, Democrats saw a major boost in the Texas primary turnout on Tuesday. Uh, It was the nation's first primary of the year, bolstering their hopes, Democratic hopes, that they could steal seats in the November midterm elections. The Democratic Party got nearly double the number of votes it did in the 2014 primaries. Got two. (laughs) Nick. (laughs) Now, Republicans still had more overall ballots, but this idea that the Democrats had this significant jump. Uh, This follows a pattern around the country where Democrats have shown new enthusiasm for voting in non-presidential years. Most of the time, Democrats don't show up unless it's a presidential election. Mm. Uh, Sometimes not even then. (laughs) Right. So midterms are around the corner. I guess the question, and start with Phil here because you are a Texan. Do we consider Texas a swing state yet? Are we we moving that way or is is that crazy talk? It's crazy talk. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, so I think it, the long-term projections, uh, I mean, I, yes, I think, in the, I mean, but people in Texas have been talking for decades about how it, in the, it's going to be a, it's going to be a blue state <laughs> at some point. I mean, you, you, at some point, yes. Right. As the, as the population gets younger, as it gets more diverse, um, Texas will, it, it's going to be harder for Republicans to maintain the this. I mean, they it's not just that Republicans win some, you know, the majority of the seats. The re- Republicans control the state other than you know a few sort of big city offices. Um, eventually, that's going to that's going to be more difficult for Republicans just because of demographic changes. Um, but we're not we're not there yet. <laughs> right. So I lived in when I lived in North Texas, I, I was a part of a congressional district where typically a Democrat didn't even run. But when a Democrat ran in the congressional election, they the Republicans still won, you know, 70 to 30. So mm-hmm. you double Democratic turnout and the Republicans still wins. Um, and so I, I think you have a couple of things going on. It, it, there's a long term trend in which I think the Demo- Democratic Party might have uh, some future, you know, but that I, in my mind, that's 20, 20 years down the road. Hmm. In the short term, um, I, this is not uncommon, right? In, in, in the, the first midterm election after a president takes power, there's oftentimes a big swing. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked to see Democrats pick up some seats, um, some maybe surprising seats in Texas. I think Democrats will do well in the midterm. I, they're not going to sweep the state. They're going to pick up a few surprise seats. I think it's a it's dangerous or it's 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 not dangerous. It's um, the conclusion to draw from that is not that ah Texas has changed. Right. <laughs> it's that the circumstances have changed and, and the Democratic Party has opportunities, but they've got a, a hell of a lot of work to do in Texas if mm. they're going to going to really swing things. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it useful to continue to run Democrats and all these for a long time? The Democrats were strategic to say, like, we're not going to spend money in Texas. We're not going to yep. spend money in Alabama, whatnot, Mississippi. Is it now have we reached a point where it's useful for Democrats to think about at least pushing those candidates? I I think so. I think it's not. I, I mean, so if you take out the fact that they have limited resources and they have to decide where to to put them, right? If we just think about Texas, 
um, I, I don't think it's just useful. I think it's essential because you you have to start changing the mindset. You have to start, you know, that part of the idea is that the Democrats don't even run somebody. Right? <laughs> you know, people don't even why don't Democrats show up to vote in Texas? Because it's pointless. The, the Republicans going to win. Um, and so, you know, if you, you have to you have to commit and put not just the random person who wants to run for office, you have to find good candidates and, and run them. You have to convince people that the Democratic Party is worth voting for. And if you're not putting any effort into it, why the hell would you vote for them? Mm-hmm. So I, I realize that they have, you know, the Democrats have to decide they have limited resources and where do they want to put them. But in an ideal world, yeah, you run people, you run good people. Um, so I believe this is this they fielded a Democratic candidate in all I think it's thirty five congressional districts, correct? Yeah. First time unusual. it's ever happened. Yeah. I, which is yeah, it's it's extremely anomalous, but at the same time you have to look at that and go, like you said, they have a limited limited amount of resources, so they're gonna centralize that in places where there could potentially maybe possibly be a chance for someone to win which probably negates 90% of the people in any of those districts, on top of the fact that I would say every single one of those Democrats is running on a national platform of being anti-Trump. You know, it's... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, They're not focusing on the the local issues of their congressional districts. It's anti-Trump. They're focusing on immigration and... um, I, I don't know any other why can't I think of the term what what issues am I thinking of but I, I mean, <laughs> I'm I just gonna do a screeching terrible, halt. Right? So no Trump it's not is, terrible Trump I'm, is creating that opportunity for Democrats I agree yeah. but this is not a long-term strategy to take and if you're going up against a Republican candidate who is either the incumbent who's been in that congressional district for a long time and knows the issues of his particular district or people who are focusing on local issues and focusing on people's pocketbooks, which, again, is most likely going to be the Republican in this situation, it's going to be really hard to convince people that you are the candidate that's going to make a difference in their day-to-day lives. It does seem it's useful for Texas to have this conversation, though, right? To have another side, for somebody to say, this is how the Republicans see the world. We see it differently. Like, I mean, let Texas have the conversation that swing states have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. I, I think you're right that Trump creates an opportunity, but then it's upon Democrats to say, let's do something other than just an anti-Trump message. Right. The, the, the reason why I am a little skeptical about Democrats' chances, I, I'm hope, I hope that I'm surprised. I, I, the idea of having competitive elections would be great. Um, but the reason that I'm a little skeptical, Texas did not they they did not like trump right uh, pretty much across the board like i mean uh, trump was not he was not the he did not win the primary in texas but when it came election time republican versus democrat people fell in line and voted for donald trump i i know so many people in texas who thought donald trump was insane and hated him but voted for him because he was better than a democrat and so i don't you know there's there's this sort of there's this democratic mobilization, but I think sort of when it comes down to it, I don't know how far the sort of anti-Trump movement gets in Texas. It will certainly get there's there's a you know, there's a lot of people there who don't like Trump. But that partisanship is so strong that I think when it comes down to it, people still fall in line along party lines. I think there's almost more opportunity if I were if I were wanting if I you know, I'm I'm. I, I don't like Donald Trump, <laughs> but <laughs> if I were running for office in Texas, I, I think that like the, the odds, the, the rational 
calculation would be I'm going to run as a liberal Republican, right? Mm. I'm not going to slap the yeah. Democratic label on. I'm going to talk about how all the stuff that Donald Trump is doing is bad. And I think, you know, free trade and we should do more, you know, whatever the, you know, the environment and all these other things. You could do that, but put an R next to your name and your chant. Like, yeah. I think that makes such a difference. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Agreed. Which is, which is yeah, a little yeah. sad, but that's the way things are. Yeah. We're doing well. We went from we've gone long on yeah. all of these. Well, this is okay. We're having good conversations. So our final, we don't have to go the full time on this final topic. This is a weird one. So this is I'm, I'm curious what you guys make of Sam Nunberg's Monday meltdown. So I'm going to read a bit of the intro to a political story. So Sam Nunberg went on multiple different networks on Monday. So from Politico. With all the reserve of a talking howler monkey escaped from the zoo, former Trump campaign aide Sam Nunberg has been gallivanting from one TV news show to another uh, to ball his defiance at a grand jury subpoena, speculate on the crimes of Donald Trump, denounce his political enemies, including Trump aide Corey Lewandowski, uh, affirm his allegiance to Roger Stone, sling insults at Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and spread sizable gossip. Now, this was something to see on TV. On Monday alone, he did three TV interviews on CNN, two on MSNBC, Bloomberg TV, and NY1. There were multiple people saying that there was something going wrong. He was either drunk or something was messed up because it, in some ways that there was – it wasn't even ethical to continue to broadcast him. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean this was – this was bizarre, although somewhat consistent with the individuals that Trump <laughs> surrounds himself with. But I didn't know what to make of this. Well, he also rescinded that and said that he would cooperate with the um, with the investigation. After, I think like, multiple day. interviews asking right. these people, should I testify? They're right. like, you're going to go to jail. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. And not only, not only did he say that on national TV, he also said that he thinks that Donald Trump committed crimes. <laughs> yes, that's right. There's not really any avoiding the, 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 the subpoena coming at you when you say that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, to me, this was disturbing alarming but it's he this guy is very close with roger stone but to me the, the core point is this is somebody that donald trump at some point had close to him and we see this all the time trump brings somebody close eventually they you know they, they're scorned and they turn away but this guy doesn't seem like he should be near any kind of power um yes nothing like <laughs> what do you think about there's the this sort of ethical journalistic question that you you sort of you know mentioned or alluded to this question of whether or not the, you know, these uh, news channels should have been putting him on the air, that there that something wasn't right and that they should have, you know, rather than sort of jumping on this, they should have, you know, known to say that we're not going to put him on. Is that I don't know. I, there's part of me that's sort of convinced that that is persuaded by that. But there's part of me that thinks this guy's a national political figure. If he calls in, if Donald Trump calls in and goes on a rant, you don't say, I don't, I don't know if he's of sound mind. You put him on the air because that's what you, that's what you do. So I, I, I don't know. What, where does that sort of ethical line fall? So here's the question. Had anyone heard of Sam Nun Nunberg right. no, prior no, to this? No. So, uh, like, why why would we think that he's a reliable source for anything? He just sounds like a nut. He's case. not reliable. But he was a, a close, uh, close right. he was an associate of Trump. That's the reason. Right. I yeah. agree. But then it's not about journalistic integrity. They just want something that's juicy and titillating more than anything. But he might have been part of the administration at some point and a campaign aide, but... But, I, like, I, is there a, a uh, again, trying to figure out where the, the line is, is there a cutoff with who is someone from the administration that should re be responsible for what they're saying or someone that 
has no contact with the media whatsoever. It may be a fucking loose cannon that nobody knows about. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, go ahead, Phil. But I, that's the media didn't make that call. Donald Trump and his administration made that call. So I, like, if if some further down, some Obama appointee that you had never heard of went on some insane rant, mm-hmm. I, I, that's that seems that like that's relevant, right? Like I think that the national media would would even if you hadn't heard of them, if they were an Obama appointee or within the sort of White House, you would. It becomes a national news story. Oh, I that agree. Same person. No, I agree. News. I think this is more of a, criti- a critique of the media itself and putting these people on than anything else, regardless of what administration is in power. That's a fair point. My initial reaction when I saw him was that he should not be. So he was on at toward the end of the day. He was on Ari Melbourne, uh, MSNBC, and my thought was he should end this interview because it felt like he was this. He was he'd lost it. That being said. If you can get somebody like that to give up a piece of information on collusion, on whatever it is, like this guy may know something which is newsworthy. So if it's if it's just about exploiting somebody who is close to Trump and make him look stupid, that's unethical and that shouldn't happen. But if your effort is to try to reveal something, I get that. Now, where that lies in the interviews he did that right. day, I don't know. But so is, you've convinced yeah. you've convinced me now that Nick is right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, because in the in like the good old days of journalism, right? You're you're right that if you can get someone close to the president to say something, um, then that's important, and you should do that. Doing that on national on live national TV reveals that your your purpose is not to get him to reveal something; it's to get viewers, right? And so that that yeah, that's where I think okay, this guy, and and this is where if one station runs this interview that's one thing by the time he gets to his eighth station it's people people know are aware of what he's doing and what he, and, and they're still saying put him on put we want in on this there's nothing new that's coming out of that at that point um the story that hey there's an unhinged guy close to the president is that that story's long gone right it's been reported well i mean um, on top of that like you know what the consequences of him you're goading him to say something that could potentially be damning to not only his career, but the administration itself. And I would really, really doubt that there's not a political agenda behind that. It, don't, don't. I don't know if it's a political. Is it me. a political agenda or is it as a ratings agenda? I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I would think more a, a ratings agenda. Yeah. But yeah, regardless, you know that there's a grand jury somewhere out there that's looking to probably talk to people exactly like this. That it's there and a, a, a special prosecutor that's supposed to be finding this information. If you're goading someone into revealing or saying something that they otherwise wouldn't have said outside of that context, is like that feels like entrapment to it's, me. It's one thing if you're sitting sober in an interview with Robert Mueller right. and he's breaking you down and you give it up. It's another thing if you literally have a mental breakdown, which that felt like what this was going on. Yeah. No, I, I was troubled by it as well. So it was, yeah. Not good, Nick. No, it was not good at all. I mean, it's sort of entertaining early on. Not super not, entertaining. Not later. So. <laughs> that was that was a that was a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was it. Right. We're good. Yeah. Um, do you mind starting the? the sure. Thing? So, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L or Facebook Barstool Politics. 
Uh, all of our beers uh, are up on uh, what's the, it's the Untapped. Untapped. Yes. Uh, Nick has posted us on any kind of venue for listening to podcasts. Uh, yes. And, um, uh, you know, we say this every week, but we're a, a relatively young podcast. So tell people, share us with your friends. That's that's the best way to get our word out. And we should say that at the beginning of podcast, at the beginning of the podcast. But We should do yeah, that, but we're it, lazy people. We'll go, going forward, we'll try that. <laughs> um, yeah, just, uh, again, SoundCloud, iTunes, um, Google Play Music. Stitcher, Blueberry, excuse me, beer. Yeah. Um, various other podcasting platforms. Just look for us, Barstool Politics. You'll find us. It's pretty easy. Um, it's nice to have you back, Phil. It was good to be back. <laughs> good to be back. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers guys. <laughs>